0: Welcome back to the pod. Apologies, if there's noise in the background, I'm here at the Ranchette in Austin, Texas, where this week we'll be joined by hundreds of listeners. But if you can't make it this time around, wherever you are in the world, we've got a pod for you. So back by popular demand, mostly by myself and Ian, because last time was super fun, we are back with our second installment of The Rereadables, where Ian and I look back on some of our favorite books and ask the questions, have they stood the test of time? Are they still useful for entrepreneurs in 2019? We'll also analyze these books over a range of categories. This episode is designed, if you're a fan of the book, or even if you've never read it, we'll summarize the key ideas for you. Today's classic book published in 2002 is all about the muse, creativity, creativity, Productivity and reaching your true potential as an entrepreneur. That's the promise. On today's episode, we are going to ask Has it delivered? Amongst many other discussions. We hope you enjoy this one. Let's just jump right into it. Today, we are going to do a book suggested by you The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Very popular book with a listenership of this show. If you haven't read The War of Art, we are going to do some half-ass internet research on your behalf. We are going to summarize the key concepts in the book and why it's made such an enormous impact on the entrepreneurial community. But first, Ian, this was a book that you selected. It was. And I'm curious, why did you select it? And what was your first impression on rereading The War of Art?
1: Well, the reason I selected it is because it's a fun book. It's one that I hadn't read for several years. When I read it, I was like, oh my gosh, I should be reading this book like once every time I start a new project or like once every year or two. So it's like the definition of a rereadable. It is my definition of a rereadable. Yeah.
0: So I'm hearing from you. This is fun. This is useful. This is rereadable.
1: Why? I'm the kind of guy, Dan, like, I cannot rewatch a movie. Like, if I've seen the movie before, I sit next to people rewatching movies and they're like getting excited or nervous. I'm like, you know what's going to happen. <laughs> and the reason I think that this book is uh, rereadable is because it's evergreen content. It's content that I could hear a million times and still have it be relevant for me personally.
0: All right. So, why don't we jump into some half ass internet research, some background information on the book before we get to the summary, Ian? First off is that your opinion on this book, that this is highly rereadable, that you should read it every year, is actually on one side of a very polarized opinion. This book is relatively polarizing. It's not necessarily the case that everybody thinks that Stephen Pressfield's The War of Art is great. In fact, I came across an article in my half-assed internet research called I Hate the War of Art.
1: <laughs> awesome.
0: This book was published in 2002. Both books now, Ian, were early 2000s books, you know, a discussion that's come up internally amongst us. Like, is it the case that these books aren't getting written anymore in 2019? And I think you can make a case that, you know, why do we still go back and read The War of Art? Why do we still go back and read like Rich Dad, Poor Dad? Why do we still go back and read GTD? I do think that people in the current generation are a little less likely to sit down and maybe write a book. Maybe they need to read The War of Art. The War of Art has 56,000 ratings on Goodreads with a 4.02 star average out of five. Stephen Pressfield didn't become a full time author until later on in his life. And it's important, I think, as a background for this book, Ian, that Stephen Pressfield isn't a motivational author. In fact, the legend goes that he didn't want to write this book at all precisely because he didn't want to be seen this way, but he was prodded to by his friends. So I like that legend. Yep. Stephen Pressfield became a professional writer in terms of making a salary from writing in 1995 with the publication of The Legend of Bagger Vance, which has since turned into an okay golfing movie with Will Smith (laughs) and uh, (laughs) Matt Damon, who doesn't look like he could swing a golf club in the movie, unfortunately. Uh, (laughs) Nine years after publication, one of our favorite writers, Seth Godin commented that Stephen Pressfield has written the most important book I've ever read on creativity and why it doesn't happen. He goes on to say the resistance is the most profound force in life of the artist, the writer and the
1: leader and Steve has given it a name and called it out. Seth Godin, who is on the show, talks a lot about the resistance. In fact, he's written a lot about the resistance. And in this book, The War of Art, that is the topic for discussion, which is the resistance. What is keeping you from getting your work done? Yeah, a lot of great
0: books like have this coinage. Or they have an element where they coin a new term. In our last episode GTD or getting things done. We talked about, you know, inbox zero. We talked about GTD, the acronym itself. And in this book, the term that got coined was the resistance. And in fact, it turned out to be a central theme of Seth Godin's very popular book, Lynchpin. Resistance was regularly talked about as if the concept had existed in society for decades or centuries, but it was really brought to the fore by this book, The War of Art, in 2002.
1: Yeah, in terms of like him not wanting to write this book and like his friends pressuring him to write this book, he says as much in the book. A lot of these types of books would come off as like, basically like, this is what you should do. This is the only way to do it. And like, this is why I'm successful. That's kind of the opposite of what this book says to me. He is pretty preachy in this book, but it's for a good reason. So every time I read this book, to me, it's like the locker room talk at halftime. Like coach comes into the locker room All the players are like sitting around and he's like, okay, guys, here's the deal. You suck. This is the reasons why you suck. Like, if you want to win this game, we gotta do one, two, and three things. Is everybody ready for this? (laughs) So we're gonna run through the categories as we do
0: on these rereadables episodes. We're gonna go through what's aged the best, what's aged the worst. We're gonna talk about some things we take offense to in this book, but first I wanna do a too-long didn't read or TLDR, just an overview of For those of you who haven't read The War of Art, basically what it's about. So here it goes. Essentially, the book is a call to arms for creatives, entrepreneurs, athletes, those who are building something. Seth Godin mentioned leaders, basically anyone who wants to push their boundaries. The book suggests that your common and only enemy is something called the resistance, something that can manifest itself In all areas of our life. So, Pressfield's seminal work uncovers the various ways this resistance manifests itself in our lives and presents strategies on how we can overcome it and become a fully realized version of ourselves, the form of ourselves that inhabits our own highest potential. To quote Pressfield, most of us have two lives the life we live and the unlived life within us. Between the two, stands only resistance. So essentially, The War of Art, Ian, is about finding that higher creative calling in our lives. I don't think we can go on with this episode really without taking a moment to try to talk about what the resistance is more specifically and why this book takes so much time to define it.
1: At some point we're gonna get into some conversation here about free will, I'm sure. Like everybody's like, uh, when are you gonna talk about free will? <laughs> All right. Well, let's start about with the start with the resistance at square one. I mean, a rule of thumb,
0: Pressfield says about the resistance, Ian, is that essentially the more important a project is to you, the more resistance you're gonna feel about it. In other words, like you're probably procrastinating on the most important endeavors in your life.
1: Yeah, and I think Seth Godin, I guess. When he got so attached to this idea, he started talking about the lizard brain. The lizard brain is the part of your brain that rejects these ideas of moving forward.
0: Yeah, the lizard brain, this idea is like the oldest part of our brain was designed to make us fear predators you know, and fear horrible things that could lead to our death. And in the modern age, we've sort of conflated predators with, why don't you ask your boss for a raise? Or why don't you quit your job? Or... Why don't you break up with your partner who is horrible to you and treats you like crap, but you're too wimpy to do it? Or why don't you start that business that you've always been talking about once you get two cocktails in you, but you're too scared to do it on Monday morning? Like all these things that you really want for your life, all that stuff, that potential, you know, it scares us. And I think what Seth Godin's treatment in the lizard brain is trying to say, there's nothing like truly scary about quitting your job. There's nothing truly scary about writing a novel, (laughs) you know, like truly scary is an elephant trampling you.
1: So when we talk about the resistance, Dan, as Stephen talks about it, it's in terms of carrying through on your art. He believes that most people have something that they want to be doing. Like you said, like you have the life that you're living and then the life that's unlived. And it's not so much like, oh, I should be doing this. It's like, this is my calling. this is what I want to do. And what's stopping us from getting there? And I think that I'd like to make the distinction, and I don't know if you'd agree with me or not, in terms of like productivity. So I don't think this is necessarily like a book about productivity as much as I feel like it's a book about like motivation to be doing the things that are pushing you forward in the ways that you want to go. It's like follow your passion. These are the things that you know you want to be doing. Here are the tools to help you get that done. He even like invokes Socrates, Ian, where it was typical
0: in ancient Greek philosophy to identify these like higher order pleasures, like some of the higher order pleasures, like literally were like the beauty of a finely run bureaucracy or like art, like these things are like higher order, and then like lower order is like eating cherry cake, that kind of stuff, like more physical earthly pleasures, and Pressfield really like carries on that tradition a lot of the things that he identifies as the resistance are more earthbound things. You know, like MTV.
1: (laughs) I think he said that in there.
0: Like TV, weird diets, excuses, like drama, lame mistakes. Like he points around to anything in your life, particularly excuses, money troubles, you're not feeling so hot that day, someone told you your work isn't that good, I think you can easily say that one of the themes of the war of art is long-term thinking over short-term thinking. But there's also this other side of it. Instead of just pointing out pleasures, he also points out things that maybe are a little bit counterintuitive. Like you know, a lot of people would say they have all these responsibilities like, oh, I've got three kids and I've got this and I've got that. And Stephen addresses that straight on in the book. He's like, look at Tolstoy. He had X number of kids. He didn't use that as an excuse all of a sudden you have this elder creative that's coming into your life and encouraging you to live a better life.
1: So Dan, in terms of this like higher calling idea, I think one of the things that people struggle with is like actually knowing if it's real or not. You know, that's one of the things that didn't get super addressed for me in the book, actually.
0: I think it was addressed in the book, which is interesting. I'm glad you brought this up. The question you're asking is like, how do you know if the calling is real? And I think that's actually one of the interesting elements of the book, which is he spends some time pointing out what's real and what's not. Like, for example, he says, if you're seeking to be an artist or a creative because you want attention and validation, that's not real. You're not going to be able to sustain a life of creativity if that's your motivation. And so for me, the distinction between whether or not it's real or not is really whether you can become a pro. That's the perspective of the book. If your creative higher calling is real, if it's substantial, then you should be able to become a pro. Yes. And Stephen Pressfield then lays out what it means to be a pro. The book lays out this problem with the resistance, the fact that you're living this subpar life, eating cherry cake and putting up with excuses and going to a career that you don't really love. And the answer for Pressfield is to become a pro. And we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, what that answer entails in the categories. Why don't we just, you want to jump into the categories, Ian? Sure. In our very first category, Ian, which is what's aged the best? What has aged the best in Stephen Pressfield's 2002, The War of Art? And for me, one of the things that's aged the best is the definition of a professional this idea that going pro can be the solution to a lot of the problems of the resistance and living an unrealized life in part. If you'll indulge us, Ian, the professional, one shows up every day, they show up no matter what, number two. Number three, they stay on the job all day. So again, back to the locker room speech, you show up you know, in sickness and in health and you sit in your chair and you'd work all day long. Number four, they are committed to the long haul. Number five, the stakes are high and real. This is about survival, feeding our families. So real stakes involved. In other words, not dreaming. Number six, we accept remuneration for our labor. In other words, we get paid. Number seven, we do not over-identify with our jobs. That's a big one. That's a big one that the amateur who's still stuck in fantasy land tends to use Their fantasies is a way to buttress. You know, I'm not just someone who works at this company, but I'm also an artist. I have these dreams of writing a screenplay or whatever. And he's like, nah, that's not
1: being a pro. That's being an amateur. Number eight. On that note, Dan, I have written down, the counterfeit innovator is wildly (laughs) self-confident. The real one, the professional, is scared to death. And then he goes on to mention that professionals have a sense of humor and are often self-deflating.
0: There you go. I love it. And this whole portion of the book, he's basically laying out like the solution as he sees it as, you know, the reason that you suffer from so much resistance is because you're stuck in amateurville. And that if you want to become a pro, these are the key elements. And that's one of the things that's aged the best from the book for me.
1: I'll also mention something that should be on that list, Dan. And this is just very simple, but basically the amateur plays part time, the professional plays full time. That I think is true. The amateur is a weekend warrior. Yeah. The professional is on seven days a week.
0: Another thing that's aged the best, Ian. Again, we're going to vote on what we think aged the best. For me, the middle-aged success story, to quote Pressfield, here I was, 42 years old, divorced, childless, having given up all normal human
1: pursuits to chase the dream of being a writer. And just like you, uh, I think Pressfield lived in a van for a while. (laughs) i'm seeing some serious parallels here man one of the legends of pressfield is that you know
0: he's kind of this everyman. like hey i was a bartender and i got fired from this job and i got i was moving around and then i made a living this way and that way and you see a lot of the echoes in the work of this ian You, you can imagine someone going through their 30s living a double life thinking they had more potential And ending up at 42 years old, having to ask themselves if they were in amateur land or fantasyville, or whether or not they were going to become a pro. And in Pressfield's case, he decided to become a pro and eventually turned his life around professionally. As you know, Ian, I'm a sucker for a middle-aged success story. (laughs) Today's show is sponsored by Ahrefs. For a lot of our listeners, Ahrefs is already your number one go-to tool for optimizing SEO search traffic results. And this year, they have dramatically improved their Keywords Explorer by rebuilding it from scratch using new technology. Ahrefs' new Keywords Explorer 3 gives users access to data not just from Google, but from nine more important search engines including YouTube, Amazon, and Bing. For SEOs and content marketers, that means you can really maximize exposure for your work or business. Pretty cool. Remember that hrefs is not just about backlinks. It's actually a full suite of SEO tools, kind of like a Swiss army knife of search engine optimization, something that you never want to be without. So whether you need to run a technical site audit, do competitor research, identify high-value keyword opportunities, hrefs is the tool you need, something I so wish I had back. In my days as an SEO, check them out at a h r e f s dot com. That's Hrefs, and big thanks to Hrefs for sponsoring the show.
1: I'll tell you what's aged for me the best, Dan. In our times of internet and social media and bragging and vanity, I feel like that's at an all-time high these days. All-time high. Thank you, Instagram and Facebook. (laughs) I'll read the quote that I just read, actually, because I think it's powerful. The counterfeit innovator is wildly self-confident. I have never seen a generation of so many confident people that suck at what they do. It's absolutely (laughs) amazing to me. And I also have never seen so many people confident in building bad businesses that aren't willing to take advice, look around, maybe see that what they're doing isn't valuable. How many people, Dan, have you met? They're in like year three or four of this business. They're like, yeah, man, this is gonna change the world. This is awesome. Everybody's like, dude, this is not gonna work. This is no good. Somehow they get this crazy self-confidence to think that it is. This is hard because Pressfield would say like you have to continue to motor on, you have to continue to go forward. And so like if you're reading this book, you keep working on your shitty business, right? But part of it is also listening to the people around you, looking, being self-aware not being so overly confident in what you're doing to know that it can fail. And Pressfield in the book even says as much, right? Like his first success was actually a failure. So knowing when you're going to fail, not being so super confident about your abilities and having humor in what you do. Dan, I would say, I guess, I should have a little bit more confidence here, but I am a professional at a couple things. But if you asked me, do I have world class abilities there? I would be sheepish about it. Even though like I make a a living from it, even though I'm like at the top of my game on it, right? I would say like I don't know, like I just bumped into some guy that's like 10 times better than me, so shh, I guess not or like you know the person that's 10 times better than you, you say like, "Well, how can I be a professional if they're a professional?" right?
0: To piggyback on that point, one of the, and the final point I have here for what's aged the best Ian is this quote, which I think sums up a lot of the points in the book, which is Why have I stressed professionalism so heavily in the preceding chapters? Because the most important thing about art, and we can substitute the word art, and he does regularly for things like entrepreneurship, for athletic pursuit, for leadership, for change-making, is to work. Nothing else matters except sitting down every day and trying. There's something seductive about contemporary culture that it's easy to identify yourself with this crowd or with that crowd or as this type of expert or that type of expert. But at the core of it, nothing matters so much as people who have been able to do the work and can do it in the future. And that's what's still rare. One of my favorite books is by Cal Newport. It's called So Good They Can't Ignore You. It's a book about career. and It's changed a lot of people's lives, actually, Ian. But this idea of There's no substitute for this stuff. This is meat and potatoes. And I think that's what's so valuable about this book is it's a breath of fresh air. There are some elements of the book that you might be able to take issue with as we'll get to, but it's really hard to argue with that core point of no shortcuts do the work.
1: In today's society, Dan's never been a bigger opportunity to become a charlatan. Absolutely. And to actually get recognized for somebody that might know what they're talking about. When you actually don't. Or
0: to become a whingy critic instead of sitting down at your desk every day and doing that tough work and fighting your own demons instead of pointing out the demons of others. And I'll use that as a segue to talk about the things I didn't like about this book very much. So our category is what's aged the worst? What has
1: aged the worst for you, Ian? Two things. Well, actually, three things in this book. Number one, Everything is a resistance. Donuts are the resistance. Sex is a resistance. Peace is a resistance. Everything is stopping you from doing your art. Yeah. <laughs> I think this works in the pump up speech, right? In the everybody come together we're going to we're going to win this war kind of speech, like everything has to be your enemy. The other team is your enemy, the ball is your enemy, everything is your enemy because you're going to war. And you're going to win. There's like only one outcome. It's winners or losers. There's none of that. And so everything kind of has to be the resistance Yeah. for that kind of thing to work. But in real life, I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. Definitely. And I'll say
0: like, one of the things I wrote down, Ian, is, is the metaphysics. He creates this world where his pump-up speech makes sense, but that world extends deep into metaphysics. So... He'll say things like, yeah, the resistance is essentially everything, or that he believes in the muse, and the muse is something that exists independent of us. He talks a great deal about like, the sort of spiritual world and how that's involved in creativity, almost like Pressfield is trying to turn you into a vessel that's channeling this higher world that's bigger than you, and therefore anything that your body is sort of experiencing that isn't channeling the muse, so to speak, is like lowly resistance. You mentioned this lack of ego thing. He's literally creating a metaphysics where your ego is the problem here, and you're trying to get rid of it and channel these muses. And it makes sense, kind of, but it doesn't feel true, I guess, which is one of the problems on the reread is that you can really easily question this world and does it really work that way? And, you know, I don't quite buy the fact that there are these spirits out there. (laughs) So it can be a little bit tough to chew on if you get caught up on that stuff. I mean, the whole third section of the book is essentially this sort of thing. And I think it's the part of the book that most people take issue with. And it really drives him to make, ultimately, what I think are some strange comments about things like disease. Yeah, which I don't know if you would still agree with, and are actually a little bit of head scratcher, so much so that you don't really take them seriously when you're reading them. Or I didn't.
1: Yeah, he even does this at the beginning of the book, where he like tells some story about a woman that gets cancer or whatever it was, and then she goes out to follow her passions and all the stuff, and then somehow the disease disappears.
0: Yeah, and he brings up an example of like Hitler as like the frustrated artist, right? I think there's like probably an interesting explanation to this if you talk to Steven, like maybe he just did bang this thing out in the weekend because all his friends were bugging him about it or whatever. (laughs)
1: You know? Well, yeah. So again, I think if you step back, like some of these things like they don't age very well. Like everything is a resistance for me. That doesn't age well. But when I'm in the book, when I'm reading the book, Dan, I can believe that world. Like I can bring myself in there and I can have like a narrow mind because it actually does Help me to accomplish the goal, which is like focusing on my art. So, although like some of this stuff, if you read it and you kind of like step back, you're like, ah, I'm not sure if that's true. Or, ah, that's not really true. That's not really the point. The point, I think, for this book for me is to get sucked into that world, is to kind of believe everything on the page because it's for a greater purpose of pursuing this art. So, I do think. If you step back, yeah, some of these things aren't going to age well. But I think that's the point is that you're fully immersed in this book and it's serving a purpose. It totally does.
0: Although the final thing I listed here is it could use a second edition because Lance Armstrong is still held up as a
1: three-time world champ
0: paragon of achievement. I just thought, oh, I think the editor would have scrapped that one the second time through. (laughs) Yeah. So ultimately, Ian, I don't think we can say that the metaphysics aged the worst. So I think we got to go with Lance Armstrong. Are there any nitpicks, things that really annoyed you about this book at the end of the day?
1: Again, like if you step back and you look at this book, there's a lot of things that would probably bug most people. You have to believe it. You have to be all in. You have to be two feet in. I will say it feels a bit judgy. But again, that's kind of the point of the book is to be judgy.
0: Yeah, fair. I agree with that. My nitpick, Ian, would be I wish there was like a second edition that got rid of like some of these egregious outlier
1: mistakes. Yeah, like curing disease and
0: Yeah, it's a popular enough book that we can get rid of like the Lance Armstrong thing and the cancer and the Hitler thing. I mean, it's just it's pretty ham handed at this point. There's no reason why an editor can't sort that out because I do think this book is important in popular culture and is really inspiring, could be inspiring to a broader audience. Best quote from the book, Ian.
1: Here's mine, Dan. This is the one that stuck out to me the most. Quote, the professional knows the resistance is like a telemarketer. If you so much as say hello, you're finished. The pro doesn't (laughs) even pick up the phone. He stays at work. I don't know why this was like my favorite quote, but this is the one that definitely stuck out to me the most, Dan. And I think it's just about focus. I kind of equate it actually to like, Walking around in a foreign country and getting approached by locals, you see tourists all the time. This happens to you, right? Like someone walks up to them and they're like, oh, excuse me. And the tourist will just stop and like engage with them. And then they always ask them for something. And like, I think this happened to me like the first time, like 15 years ago. And then I was like, I will never, ever stop again for a local because i know i know what the outcome is they want something from me it's not going to be a good situation because i'm on a mission like i'm headed to the restaurant i'm headed to see the sites whatever it is like i know what that person is going to do and it's going to be to try and take something away from me and i think that that's the case when your phone rings when your inbox rings metaphorically these people are trying to take something away from you they're trying to take your time away from you And if you're really focused on trying to execute on your art or your vision or your purpose, there's no time for that. There's no time to talk to the person in the street. There's no time to answer your phone with people that are going to suck away resources from you.
0: Can you imagine how intolerable you could become if you really inhabited this? It's like your partner asks you to help bake some brownies or clean the house or something. And all of a sudden, you're channeling all this resistance garbage in their direction. I mean, this could really get you in some trouble. Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: (laughs) Again, like living in a vacuum. This book is all about living in a vacuum, getting pumped up. Does that work like in everyday life? No. But can it help you filter out some of the BS? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's important to to note that the book isn't all about
0: like anybody who's seeking help on a tray of brownies is your enemy of your higher calling or whatever. There's also a lot about routine and about preparing like a professional, which are some of the best elements of the books. For example, Pressfield outlines his like morning routine where he wakes up. It's very actually common amongst high performers that they have a lot of superstition. So like you put on your lucky socks and you sort of say a little prayer to the spirits to deliver onto you creativity. But then the most important part is, you know, you lock yourself down to a computer. If, say if you're a writer, that computer doesn't have anything else on it except your writing program. And like as a professional, what you do is you sit there and you do your work until for the allotted amount of time. And that's really what this book's about. You know, It's not about not doing the brownies or developing an attitude problem or whatever. It's about figuring out that routine, that work practice that's going to lead to the types of outcomes that as an amateur you were dreaming about.
1: He goes on to detail his time spent in front of the typewriter. I think it's like, I don't know, 10 o'clock till two o'clock or three o'clock. But the way that he knows that he's done is when he starts to make typos. (laughs) And then he folds it up and then he's on his way. So that's the reason why you fight the resistance, Dan, is so that you can sit down during that time and do your work. Not so you can say no to everything in your life, because I'm sure that Steven is saying yes to certain things, but he is certainly not interrupting that time in front of the typewriter.
0: All right, so the idea most likely to make you money or make your life better or be remembered in 20 years. So what's that one idea for you, boss man?
1: For me, it was when he talked about being a Marine. He says the artist must be like the Marine. He has to know how to be miserable. We've talked a lot on this show, Dan, about being miserable, living on very little income, taking that income, putting it back into your business, figuring out a way to sustain as long as possible. We call it the runway. What are the things that I can do to extend that runway? And for most people, that is living miserably. I would say we're doing pretty good at this point. High on the hog, sold a business, got two other businesses. By the way, we are a key aim in this book.
0: Totally. Pressfield points direct to people that think they've had any kind of success or over-identify with that success and says, look, you're in deeper shit than the people.
1: <laughs> Wait a minute. I'm getting to that point. Okay. Even though I have air conditioning in my car now when I previously didn't, I have no problem going back to no air conditioning. Like I know how to live miserably. And I'm very comfortable living miserably, especially because I know that I can fight the resistance when I'm there. And then I'm... Hopefully, my idea is that I will get out of that miserable situation at some point, And it will not be eternal.
0: I mean, I think the more central point is it's not really about luxury. It's about staying close to your art and staying close to your practice. And you all see this with like the sort of coked out second record. It's a kind of a common trope in artists. Like, all of a sudden, a rock band gets a little bit of success and their second record is decadent and crappy. And it's like all these sort of big ideas that they're sort of floating out there because everybody's telling them they're great. And it's that distance that Pressfield's warning us about. It's like, You're never going to be a big shot if you're a pro because the pro is going to stay close to their art. They're going to stay close to their practice and they're going to realize that, you know, one of the things you mentioned in the book, the critic is going to come and go. The critic, the person who says, oh, you're the greatest or you're the worst or whatever, they're gone. You're waking up the next morning staring down the blank sheet of paper. Yep. That's really the motivational message that makes a lot of sense to me.
1: Also, the pro knows that at any moment, he or she can be toppled off their throne or their podium. And so you have to protect it. You have to figure out a way to keep fighting every day. Like, just because you made it to the front row the first time doesn't mean you're going to make it to the front row every time. Like, you actually have to defend that position.
0: Stephen, on the success of this book, Pressfield ended up writing future books, Ian. That are more focused, I would say, on the positive side of doing your work, on the routine, on the creative process. But I think it's fair to say that this first book is a little bit more negative. And so I would point to this capital R resistance as the idea that would endure for 20 years, that continues to come up in conversation, and that is useful to readers as a tool to look around and sniff out like what's truly the resistance in your life. For me, that's gonna be the most enduring idea, the war of art in retrospect a bit like darker than i remembered in my mind yeah pretty interesting book and certainly comes across as you know notes from a creative who hasn't always had it easy you know really lionizes it in part because of the sacrifices he's made or the pain that he's endured in order to have it all right so would this book work better in another format Ian, would you prefer that you would have listened to it, that you would have had it done on a podcast, seminar, pamphlet? What do you think?
1: I think it should be a book. And actually, I think it should be a Kindle book. It's one of the few books I think that actually works like the best on the Kindle. And I'll tell you why. Because every page you click, you get 1% further through the book. (laughs) You can just whiz through this book in like an hour and a half. It's so satisfying because start to finish in one sitting. For me, I think it's perfect as a book. I'm going to continue to pick it up maybe a little bit more often, especially when I am I feel like I'm not doing my art. I think it's a great motivator for me. It's a great pump-up speech. You know, it's so funny that you mentioned that because I was going to mention it but thought it was like
0: too strange to even bring up. No, it's not strange at all. I even thought the same thing. I was like, I'm pretty sure I prefer this as a Kindle read, but I didn't know why, so I didn't mention it. You made me realize... Because it's like such a bite-sized book in retrospect, like the chapters are very short. So basically, the book doesn't have a really clear structure. The book is basically like, oh, and here's another thing. Oh, and here's another thing. Oh, and here's another thing. And I think if it were a paper book, you might get a little bit annoyed at switching the pages so fast. (laughs) You know what I mean? But in the Kindle format, yeah, you're really clipping along and it makes a ton of sense. So I agree. This book should be read in Kindle format.
1: On the topic of like, oh, another thing, oh, another thing, I just want to point out that the two books that we've said are rereadables, GTD so far, and this book, they're not traditional books in terms of like, here's the introduction, like here's the arc of the story, like they're just straightforward information. It'll be interesting to see what books we pick in the future, Dan, but these are some of my favorite types of books. The ones that don't have a lot of fluff, the ones that cut to the core. If I want to read a story, I'll read a story. But this is like purely for how can I push forward? I need the information. I want to improve myself kind of thing. Just give me the speech, Steven. Exactly. I'm
0: grizzled. I'm getting beat up by the world. And I need to build a higher self. <laughs> it's like the brave heart speech. We're going to battle. We're gonna make our lives better. Steven Pressfield, thanks for helping us out. It's been the war of art. We want to hear your thoughts, your suggestions for future re-readables episode. We're going to post this one over at tropicalmba.com slash art. It's been fun as always, boss man. Thanks for the suggestion for coming by to share your thoughts today. We'll see you, as always, next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. See you then.